0: I was born in Minneapolis which is the only city uh, in the world that was a Trotskyist uh, city. Uh, During the 1930s, it was a center of Trotskyism, and my parents worked with Leon Trotsky uh, in Mexico. Uh, And when I was three years old, my father was uh, put in jail under the Smith Act as a political prisoner for uh, having the works of Lenin and Marx on his uh, uh, shelves and for uh, leading the Minneapolis general strikes from nineteen. 34 to 1936 so i grew up uh knowing uh many members of uh the Russian revolution uh, members of the central committee when lenin was in power uh when my father got out of jail we moved to chicago uh and uh where he got a job editing uh traffic uh traffic world and tra- uh, traffic supply news uh he had graduated from the university of minnesota with a uh a masters of business in 19 uh 29 and the depression came he had wanted to go to latin america to become a millionaire and when the depression came he thought that capitalism wasn't fair and uh, that's what made him a, uh, a trotskyist and he uh, became editor of the northwest organizer which was the uh, labor newspaper so when i grew up i had uh, uh, the old German Communist Party members, uh, Americans, they would all come to the house and tell me the stories of uh, the revolution. Uh, so that uh, when I grew up I was supposed, expected to uh, lead a revolution if conditions were right. So we all had, uh, when I'm uh, down through my teens, we discussed uh, what are the right revolutionary conditions and uh, uh, I was not that interested at the time in politics. Uh, I was fascinated uh, with physics, uh, with chemistry, and more and more with music. Uh, when I, I went to the University of Chicago, which was uh, uh, a high sc- a grade school and high school for gifted children, my father had the highest IQ in the federal penitentiary system, I'm told. And so uh, they thought uh, his kid must be smart, and they gave me a test and uh, gave put me in a very good school. Uh, And my formative year was really uh, the tenth grade. I think when I was uh, 14 years old, Uh, we had a right-wing teacher, uh, Curtis Edgett, uh, in social science. Uh, He would uh, keep he kept calling me uh, a commie. Uh, He had a sign over his. A blackboard in the room, give them all what the Rosenbergs got. The Rosenbergs were the Stalinist spies. And, uh, but what I asked, you know, do you mean the Stalinists? He said, no, I mean the Jews. So that was the University of Chicago. Well, he would call me a Stalinist, uh, a communist, but we also had uh, the child of a Stalinist, uh, Danny Landau, in the class. And he called me a fascist because I was a Trotskyist. So, uh, in, as a high school, I was the vo- reasonable voice in the middle. It's the only time in my life I've been in the middle. And uh, we would come in, I had my students would, uh, uh, my fellow students would carry the works of Lenin, uh, uh, Around. And when my father was in jail, one of the things he did was to compile a dictionary of all the things Lenin and Trotsky had said about various sub- subjects. And I would raise my hand, and the other professor would say, Where did Lenin say that? And I'd say, In volume 6, page 322. And uh, my student, Yes, yes, here it is. And uh, it was uh, the. Uh, I liked being hated by the right wing because it made me a lot of friends. And so while the Stalinists called me a fascist and the fascists called me uh, a communist, I uh, recruited uh, many members into uh, the the socialist uh, uh, youth groups uh, in Chicago. Uh, My parents had worked uh, with Leon Trotsky in Mexico, uh, as did many uh, Minneapolis people uh so i I was uh very happy being in an adversarial position and uh uh somehow being in an adversarial position never hurt uh at all. My interest was music at that time uh and i 'd studied uh piano and I basically studied to be a conductor and uh <laughs> When I was, when I graduated, uh, in 1959 from, uh, the University of Chicago, where my degree was in, uh, uh, Germanic philology and history of culture, uh, but while I was there, I was also studying full-time music, primarily, uh, the, uh, uh, theories of Heinrich Schenker, the German music theorist. And I, uh, uh in 1960, when Leon Trotsky's widow, Natalia, died, uh, The executor of his estate, Mac Shackman, assigned me the copyrights uh, uh, saying that since I was Leon Trotsky's godson, uh, I should... uh Uh, do a publishing company. So I wrote, uh, I'd had a correspondence with George Lukács, the Hungarian uh, 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 literary critic, and he gave me his copyrights, and I came to New York thinking that I would start a uh, publishing company while I studied uh, conducting with Dmitry Metropolis, uh, who was the conductor of the New York Philharmonic. Uh, Well, I couldn't get anybody to publish uh, the works. Uh, Lukács insisted that I have... uh, Uh, a student of his do the translation of his work and it was an awful translation uh and I wanted to edit it and he wouldn't let any editing uh be done so uh I sort of gave up uh doing that and uh then an event happened that changed my life. Uh, my uh, best friend growing up was Gavin McFadgen. Uh, you may know him as a famous uh, documentary film uh, uh, organizer and one of the heads in London of uh, uh, investigative uh, reporting. And, uh, he introduced me he had introduced me to Terence McCarthy, who was the, uh, an Irish communist and was the translator of uh, marx 's theories of surplus value and in one evening uh, we talked about how changes in the water level in America the, and the sunspot cycle in the water level would go up and down uh, causing a crop uh, failure that would lead to an autumnal drain of money from the uh, stock and bond market, causing a financial crisis and the periodic crisis. And to me, that was so beautiful, so aesthetic, that I decided on the spot to become uh, an economist. And Terence uh, said that he would uh, become my mentor if I would read all of the bibliography of Marx's theories of surplus value. So I uh, duly uh, uh, came to meet most of the uh, rare book dealers, economics book dealers in New York City uh, ended up uh, working for Gus Kelly uh, as part time as an editor and writing introductions uh, to the economic classics and uh, in exchange for writing introductions they would give me. I had a very large library um, of books, including many um, American protectionist writers, many economists that are missing from the normal history of economic thought uh, well meanwhile I had to go and make a living. And uh, it, it, it was, I got to New York with only $15 in my pocket. And in 1959, $15, you know, I could buy a little bit. Uh, I spent maybe uh, a little bit in a seedy hotel in Greenwich Village. And uh, then I took a walk and uh, there was a folk music bar. And I thought, oh, go, nice folk music, let me go in. And I went into the bar uh, to listen to a guitar. Uh, And somebody came up to me and said, ah, Huck Hudson. When I grew up, my name was Huck because my father's favorite book was Huckleberry Finn. And it was a a friend of mine who had uh, stayed at my house in Chicago when he was going to uh, the University of uh, Wisconsin and visiting a friend, John Harold, a folk singer. And he said, why don't you stay with me until you can get a job? So I moved out of the hotel into his house and got a job as a French typist for Wonder Bread. That was the only, I went to a uh, agency and, and the only thing I could do that other people couldn't do was type in French and, and German. Uh, so I did that for a little bit and uh, uh, then de- uh, decided to Enroll in an economics course and get a master's degree at uh, New York University. Uh, the advantage of New York University was it was the teachers were all part time. They didn't want my mind. All they wanted was my money, and that's wonderful. I got to keep my mind, not be brainwashed. And uh, uh, they they said that people. Uh, Do you have any background in economics? And I said no. My background's in music and cultural history. Uh, my mentor at Chicago in cultural history was uh, Eugen Jolas, uh, the Kulturgeschichte specialist, and he introduced me to the work of Spengler and Egon Friedel, uh, Nietzsche, uh, and other writers. So that was my literary background. And uh, I I registered at NYU and got a job with the uh, Savings Banks Trust Company, which was the, the one commercial bank that all the savings banks put their uh, used to put their deposits in, and there were 135 savings banks in New York, and there there are none anymore. They've all been cannibalized. They've been bought out by the commercial banks, uh, but my job was to trace uh, the savings in New York, how it grew exponentially, uh, and Compare this to how it was lent out for mortgage money, and I saw the exponential, uh, this deposits were like a heartbeat, uh, and the deposits at the savings bank would grow every quarter. By dividend, when the dividends were paid. So I saw that uh, basically people left the savings they had in the bank to grow automatically, exponentially by interest. And uh, that became a, uh, I saw that this recycling of uh, interest bearing debt was pushed back into the housing market to, in, to bid up housing prices. And Real estate is something that is not taught in any course in the United States economic. Eighty percent of bank loans in America, England, and much of Europe are real estate loans, but in the textbooks that students learn economics from, it is as if banks lend money to industry. Banks don't lend a penny to industry uh, to, pr- to uh, invest in capital goods and hire people. They lend money to buy out industry, to take it over, and to cannibalize it, and uh, to strip assets, but not to create uh, capital. They lend it to mortgages. They, they basically lend against assets, against uh, homes, commercial real estate, stocks or, or bonds or some assets. So uh, the, I realized that uh, in the textbooks, uh picture of how finance works were completely different from what I work. Uh, I had to take a money and banking course taught by an uh, uh, ideological Greek professor, uh, Stephen Rousseaus, who had never worked in a bank in his life. None of my professors had ever worked in a bank. They, everything they knew from the textbooks. And, uh, he had an article by uh, a man who subsequently became a friend of mine, Hyman Minsky, uh, who said? Who thought that the business cycle could be explained by savings banks putting their money in the commercial banking system that would be lent out to the economy? And I said, Look, they—what you call the commercial banking system—is one bank, the bank I work for, and we don't make any loans at all to the economy. We buy bonds uh, and. So I got a C-plus in the course. He said, I didn't understand textbook economics. And I realized that there was an absolute contradiction between how the real economy worked and what was in the textbooks. Uh, After I I worked for uh, the Savings Banks Trust for three years in uh, December 1964, I'd finished all of my coursework and wanted to go to work uh, I, I, as a balance of payments economist for the Chase Manhattan Bank. And that was the most formative employment I ever had. My job, because the balance of payments is also a topic that is not taught in any university. I taught it at the new school later, but uh, universities don't teach about the balance of payments. It's all uh, monetary theory. Uh, what I had to do was after I finished my coursework, was writing the dissertation. Uh, Terence McCarthy suggested I write on concepts of productivity uh, because there are many different, what is productive, what's unproductive. Uh, there was a uh, professor at the uh, New York University, Solomon Fabricant as in the name Fabricate. Uh, he was uh, the head of the National Bureau of Economic Research. Uh, I, uh, I went into his office. He said, the first thing I want you to do, I want you to join the CIA. Uh, uh, I'm recruit- he gave me a copy of uh, the CIA's, re- uh, the first published report in America of the CIA that went public was on Russia's gold stock, uh, saying that it didn't have any gold. And I looked at it and said, you must know that this is all a lie. I work for the Chase Manhattan Bank. Our our customer is Anaconda. Anaconda has bought gold bars from the Soviet Union, and the gold bars are not made from gold, they pan out of the river. They're made as an electrolytic byproduct of copper refining. Uh, What you should do is forecast the copper output of uh, Russia, and when you uh, electrolytically refine copper, gold and silver fall to the bottom of the... uh, And it's the residue that is responsible for most of the uh, uh, gold stock, not only of Russia, but for other copper producers, such as Chile. He said, uh, uh, well okay, you're not going to join the CIA. Uh, I I couldn't believe he didn't know about my background, but uh, that didn't matter. Uh, I told him I wanted to write concepts of productivity. Uh, as I was interested in classical economics because as a Marxist, I'd seen how Marxism grew out of classical economics, grew out of the economics of the physiocrats, Adam Smith, uh, John Stuart Mill. The concept of circular flow uh, was always critical to me. The concept of economics is a systems and systems analysis, which was just becoming popular in the 1960s. Uh, Fabricant said, uh, the, these theories are worthless. If these theories would have been relevant, then uh, they would they would have been successful in uh, the textbooks. And uh, if a theory is no longer held, it's because it's died out in a Darwinian struggle for existence and is irrelevant. So I, des- uh, I decided. I talked to a friend of mine, a former communist uh, who was uh, the business school professor, uh, Gerhard Brie. He was a refugee from Germany, and he suggested uh, we'd had a discussion about some of the books that I I was buying from other uh, the book dealers, and I wrote my uh, dissertation on Erasmus Pesh Smith, uh, whose manual uh, who essentially wrote the manual that uh, became the Republican Party doctrine in eighteen fifty three uh, the uh, manual of political economy, and I decided to write about uh, the uh, uh, protectionists with uh, gerhard bree and had no problem at all uh, getting the PhD until I had my orals. And again, uh, they didn't have anyone teaching money and banking on a full-time basis at uh, Washington Square, which is the center of NYU. So I I thought, I'll get, there's a money and banking guy who wrote a textbook. He must know about banking uh, uptown. And uh, he, uh, uh, I passed all the orals of all the, Professors I'd studied with economic history and third world development and uh, but uh, the money and banking man said I I knew nothing about banking that my idea of how banking worked was not at all what was in the textbooks uh, and uh, I had to retake the orals after reading. A fictitious world, so I became aware of the fact that academic economics is very fictitious. It has nothing to do about the real world. It was really a parallel universe theory to say if the world worked this way, then the existing distribution of income would be fair. Everybody would get what they deserve. Uh, There's no income that's unearned. Everything is fair, uh, and uh, you have to accept the world the way it is. Uh, And I never accepted the way the world it it was because of the way I grew up. When, uh, as I mentioned, when I grew up in Chicago, uh, I thought that the years of World War II were. I thought everybody was drafted into jail because everybody who'd be at the house was in jail during the war for trying to lead strikes or being political or being left-wing. And only later did I realize there was actual fighting going on and they weren't just putting in people who read Marx and uh, uh, radical uh, uh, leadership there. So I worked at Chase Manhattan uh, until 1967. Then finally I had to quit to finish the dissertation, spent a year uh, on that, Uh, Then, uh, at Chase, I had become uh, the specialist in the oil industry. Uh, When the Vietnam War began and uh, escalated, uh, President Johnson, in January 1968, right after I joined the bank in December 1967, passed uh, uh, the uh, uh, voluntary compulsory uh, foreign investment uh, rules blocking foreign country uh, company American companies blocking American companies from investing more than five percent of uh, uh, the uh, growth of the previous year 's investment well the oil industry objected to that, and uh, they they came to David Rockefeller and said, we've got to convince the government that we're ripping off other countries so fast. We're able to exploit them so rapidly that it really helps us to take over. You've, you've got to have them uh, uh, do the statistics. So David Rockefeller came to me, and he said, I want you to do a, a study of the balance of payments of the oil industry. M- make a uh, You can ask all the oil companies all the questions you want, Fill out the forms. You can design a accounting statistical format, and uh, uh, we'll give you you know a year to write it all up. Uh, and to me, this is wonderful. Uh, oil, oil was the key. Well, it turned out I found out that uh, the average dollar invested. Uh, a, a that actually was invested abroad of oil companies w- was recaptured by the U.S. economy within 18 months. The payback period was that fast. Uh, the report that I did was put on the uh, desk of every senator and every representative in the United States, uh, and uh, you know I was celebrated for being uh, the economist of the the oil industry. Rockefeller said uh, we don't want to give the uh, have the oil and gas department do it because they would be thought of lobby as. Lobby- Lobbyists, and you know nobody knows who you are. So you're, I, I, you can. We want to know what the real facts are, and if uh, we like, we they're what we think they are. We'll publish what you write. If we don't like it, we'll keep it to ourselves. uh, But please do the study. So this is wonderful. This uh, taught me everything about the balance of payments, which, as I said, is a topic that's not taught in any university. Uh, So. I, I finished that, finished the dissertation, uh, and then uh, I developed a methodology. Uh, the most of the balance of payment statistics were changed when they d- designed the gross national product accounts, and uh, the uh, the accounts now treat exports as if if you make a million dollars worth of uh, grain exports you actually uh, get a million dollars into the economy. Uh, If you export a million dollars of arms, of military, it all comes back. And what I found out is that only a portion, actually, uh, uh, of imports or exports come back. For instance, all of America's oil imports are from American oil companies. So if you pay $100 uh, uh, for oil, maybe uh, $30 of that is profit, uh, $30 is compensation to American management. $30 is the use of uh, American exports to uh, uh, of physical equipment, uh, oil drilling equipment and others, uh, to uh, make the oil. Uh, I, the closest people uh, that I worked with for the study was uh, Standard Oil Company, uh, which uh, was always very close to the Rockefellers, as you know. So I I went over the statistics and I I said, uh, balance of payments, I can't find where Standard Oil makes the profits. Does it make the profits by producing oil uh, at the production end or does it make it selling it at the gas stations at the the retail sales end? Uh, And the uh, treasurer of uh, Standard Oil said, ah, Okay. <laughs> I can tell you where where we make them. We make them right here in my office. I said, Ah, how? He said. I said, Where? Where do I? What countries do I find this in? He said, I don't find it in Europe. I don't find it in Asia. I don't find it in Latin America or Africa. He said, Ah, there. Do you see at the very end? There's something called international. And I said, Yes, that always confused me. I, I where is it? I thought all these international. He said, International means countries that are not really countries. They they're Liberia and uh, Panama, uh, countries that only use the U.S. dollar not their own currency so that we don't have a currency risk. They're flags of convenience, and they don't have any income tax. So he explained to me that we sell our oil at a very low price from uh, the Near East uh, to, uh, uh, to the, uh, Nigeria or to, uh, to Panama or Lagos uh, or wherever they have uh, uh, the uh, flag of convenience, and then we sell it at a very high price to our refineries uh in Europe and our refineries in America uh, and such a high price that they don't make any income. there's no tax to pay in all of our investment in Europe there's no tax to pay because we price it so high and the third world countries uh, Saudi Arabia we don't pay them any uh, we only pay them a royalty we don't earn an income there because we sell it so low all of our money is taken in uh, uh, in Liberia or or Panama and these non-countries. Ah that gave me the clue that uh uh people these days talk about money laundering uh in 19 the last uh, few months i worked for chase manhattan in 1967 i was going up to my uh, office on the ninth floor and uh a man got onto the elevator and said, oh, "I was just coming to your office, Michael. Uh, here is a, a report uh, uh, that uh, I'm from the State Department, uh, CIA. Uh, we want to calculate uh, how much money we could get if we if we set up bank branches and uh, became the bank for all the criminal capital in the world." He said, "Look, we can we figured out we can finance and." He said this in an elevator, that we can finance uh, the Vietnam War with uh, all the drug money uh, coming into America, all of the criminal money. Can you make a calculation? So I spent uh, three months figuring out how much money goes to Switzerland uh, from the drug dealings, what's the volume of drug dealings. They helped me with all sorts of statistics on that. And uh, uh, th- they said, we can become the criminal capital of the world, and it'll finance the dollar, and uh, uh, this, is, this will be uh, enable us to afford the spending to defeat communism in Vietnam uh, and uh, elsewhere. And uh, if we don't do that, the bomb throwers will come to New York. Uh, so I became a specialist in off uh, money laundering. Uh, nothing could have been better. I mean, uh, I had all the statistics. I had the help of all of the government uh, uh, people, you know, explaining to me how uh, the CIA worked with the drug dealing and the criminals and the kidnappers uh, to raise the money. So uh, it would be off the balance sheet funding and Congress didn't have to approve it when they would kill people and uh, 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 do revolutions. And they were completely open with me. And, you know, I, I realized they'd never done a success. Security check on me, uh, so uh, I'd, uh, 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 I I wanted to do a study of the balance of payments of the whole United States. So I went to work for Arthur Anderson, which was at that time uh, later uh, one of the big five accounting firms in the United States. Later, uh, it was uh, It was, uh, got involved in the Enron. Uh, Uh, scandal and uh, was classified as a criminal enterprise and closed down, but uh, I was working before the other people went to jail, uh, uh, or before they closed down Arthur Anderson. So I spent a year applying my uh, balance of payments analysis to uh, the uh, U.S. balance of payments and finally finished. and i found out that the entire us balance of payments deficit in the 1960s since the vietnam since the korean war the entire balance of payments deficit was military spending abroad the private sector of trade and investment was exactly in balance tourism trade investment exactly in balance all of the deficit was military and i, I found that very interesting so i turned it in uh my boss uh, mr barsanti uh came in to me uh, three days later and he said, I'm afraid uh, uh, we have to fire you. And I said, what happened? He said, well, we sent it to Robert McNamara, and uh, who was uh, the secret- Secretary of the World of Defense and later became an even more dangerous person with the World Bank, which probably is more dangerous to the world than uh, the American military. Uh, it's, uh, that's another story. Uh, And he said, uh, McNamara said that uh, we at Arthur Anderson would never get another government contract if we publish a report. Uh, That uh, this is very, and in all of the Pentagon papers that uh, uh, later came out with McNamara, there's no discussion at all of the balance of payments cost of the the Vietnam War. This is what uh, was driving America off gold. At Chase Manhattan from 1964, Till I left, every Friday the Federal Reserve would come out with uh, its uh, goal is weekly statistics uh and we could trace the gold stock everybody was talking about general de gaulle cashing in the gold because in vietnam it was a french colony and the american soldiers and uh, uh, uh army would have to use french banks the dollars would go to france and de gaulle would cash it in uh for gold well the germany actually was cashing in more gold than de gaulle but they didn't make speeches about it so uh, I could see that uh, the war spending was going to drive America off gold. There were three people, known as the Columbia Group uh, in Chicago, saying the Vietnam War is going to destroy the American monetary system as we know it. And that was Terence McCarthy, my mentor, Seymour Melman, a professor at uh, Columbia University's School of Industrial Engineering, where Terence also taught, and myself. Uh, and we would it basically, go around uh, the uh, New York City and uh, giving speeches. And uh, uh, my first article that I wrote uh, for published was uh, a Ramparts magazine called "The Sieve of Gold," all about how the Vietnam War was going to fa- force America off gold, which it did, of course, uh, in uh, 1971 when President Nixon, uh, in August, stopped uh, the gold. Well. F... Uh, I took my balance of payment study to New York University's business school. And uh, they said, oh, this is great. We'll publish it. Uh, so I was able to immediately get it published. And uh, I was invited to give a lecture at the New School for, Economic, for Social Research in New York. at a graduate faculty, uh, I was in the process of analyzing the Vietnam War. I'd had to analyze copper prices. Every soldier in Vietnam used one ton of copper per year. I think that it's as if they were fighting each other with ingots of copper. Uh, and so I was forecasting copper prices by looking at the troop buildup one ton of copper per, uh, per army person and, uh, forecasting that the price of copper would go up. So I was known for a while as Mr. Copper, uh, for there. And, uh, uh, there were a number, of, uh, as I said, Anaconda was Chase's main, uh, client. Uh, Kennecott was the client of uh, Citibank and, uh, there were a group of uh, commodity people in Wall Street that just love copper. I love copper. And uh, one uh, uh, head of the group said, aluminum's a shit metal. And uh, uh, I felt the same way, that I, uh, copper's nice. Uh, in By uh, around 1968, the largest item of theft in the United States was copper. People were stripping the copper off churches. Uh, the drain pipes were of copper. The... Uh, uh, Every, the wires that go into houses and pull it, uh, copper scrap prices were going up. Uh, this became so I, I became aware of the recycling uh, problem uh, uh, and uh, the degree to which uh, um, uh, the sources of metal were not mining the earth, but uh, the recycling of uh, uh, various things. So uh, I ended up, I worked for a while for Continental Oil, is uh, their economist, uh, and then uh, while I was doing Uh, they uh, they convinced, uh, they bought a copper company uh, at my recommendation, because I could see the war was going to go on uh, for a while, and they got into real estate. Well, then uh, they moved up to Connecticut, and uh, I decided to become a professor at the new school. of trade theory, because I'd never had a course in trade theory, and the only uh, way to learn about a topic is to teach it so uh, i began to, uh, I gave the course in trade and uh, then was hired as a full time uh, person uh, the na- in uh, nineteen seventy and uh, taught national income uh, analysis uh, using marx's uh, theories of surplus value as my textbook. Uh, and uh, this uh, infuriated uh, the department head, Paul uh, uh, Robert Heil, uh, Heilbroner, who uh, whose idea of Marx was. What did Marx have for breakfast, and how did he feel later? And did he really have an affair with his maid? Uh, there was not much economic analysis there, and uh, he was furious. He said, "You're a Wall Street thug. You know, uh, we only have we have one third of the clients, business school, one third foreign students from the UN, and one third sort of radicals who want a left winger." And he just assumed that I was there for the business school. We, I never once discussed politics uh, at the new school. Uh, I realized that Hal idea of Marxism was Stalinism, uh, that it was uh, a, a very crude idea. Uh, he uh, well, he brought in a, uh, uh, a Stalinist ostensibly to teach uh, trade theory, and I said, "That's fine. I'll teach monetary theory and banking theory." And uh, that, that was Steve Heimer, who uh, was a proselytizer for LSD. Uh, he he would. Uh, Tell the students to take LSD and then listen to uh, his courses. Uh, about a year after he joined, he went to the American As- Economic Association meeting in uh, Montreal. Uh, had students uh, take LSD? They were standing on their head, uh, and on the put them in the on the way back, drove his car into a truck and died. It's really dangerous to take LSD when you're driving. And uh, uh, students, the foreign students, were coming into my office and saying. Is this man CIA? Why would he want us to uh, take LSD unless he wants to uh, you know uh, deport us or arrest us or make us into a spy? So I, I had you know they there was I was the guy they would come to, and that made Heilbrunner think. All the more that I must be a Wall Street uh, uh, plant, and uh, so. And uh, finally, uh, uh, the uh, dollar went off gold in 1971. I wrote, I took a number of articles that I'd written, and uh, uh, wrote my first book, *Super Imperialism: The Economic Strategy of American Empire*, uh, which came out in uh, 1972. Well, just before that, I'd uh, I was uh, invited almost every year to give a uh, uh, a lecture at the uh, annual uh, meeting of uh, Drexel Burnham, uh, th- like Arthur Anderson, they also were a criminal enterprise that ended up uh, having to go to jail uh, uh, for fraud. But uh, the I I was they joked that I was their token goyim or their shabbat goyim. It was basically a Jewish uh, firm, but they needed someone who wasn't Jewish, and they said, "Look, uh, my friend Andre Sharon there, who also was a protege of Terence McCarthy, said I'm, we're going to have an annual meeting. we i going to introduce you to Herman Kahn, who uh, was a military theorist, brilliant brilliant military theorist. He said, look, he's going to, uh, talk, he talks very fast. He's a brilliant guy. He's going to offer you a job. You, uh, you probably can't understand what he's saying, but just say yes. You gotta get out of academia. You, you don't belong in academia. So uh, I gave the speech uh, about, how, um, uh, about the oil industry and how America was exploiting the world and how going off gold meant that there was an, uh, the only thing that foreign countries could do with their balance of payment surplus being thrown off by the U.S. uh, balance of payments deficit for military was to buy treasury bonds. So the military would spend dollars abroad, pump the dollars into the European and Asian economies. The Asian economies would lend the money back to the United States government by buying bonds to finance the war in their own military encirclement. And I, I told that to the Wall Street meeting, Herman said, this is brilliant. We've run rings around the British imperialists. This is a great story. I'll uh, leave academia. I will triple your salary if you'll come to work for me. And I said, well, you know, I'm hoping my students, you know, will go on and spread my ideas. He said, look you're hoping that someday one of your students will be a senator, maybe president. You join the Hudson Institute. It was named after the river, not after me. Uh, an, an, my ancestor discovered the river, but it's not hereditary. Uh, uh, that, And uh, I'll take you to the White House next month. And uh, it doesn't matter who's president. Wouldn't you rather wait until somebody becomes elected president and then you become their advisor instead of hoping that one of your students from the new school? Come on. So I, I immediately uh, joined the Hudson Institute. And uh, was paid the same price he was. I, I was the number two man, and we disagreed on everything. He was a, a right wing ringer, a, a Zionist, and I was a left winger. Uh, we had the big uh, study that the institute did was the corporate environment study, telling corporations what's happening in the world. Uh, and uh, it ended up I getting I got most of the clients. Uh, I I got uh, one day in September, Right after my book came out in uh, September, uh, I I was buying Tibetan art at that time and Chinese art. I was a a specialist in Asian art as uh, a hobby. Uh, and I got a call, I, I woke up in the morning, and I, oh, I owe $3,500, what am I going to do? And I got a call from, I think, the Royal Bank of Canada, saying, uh, we've just made uh, $20 million by reading your book, uh, and the, uh, the last paragraph on how prices were going to go up. What what do you charge to come and give a lecture for us? And I said, oh, $3,500. Know, and they said, okay. So I thought, this is wonderful. So uh, they organized it uh, through a stock brand brokerage company Molson Rousseau uh in Montreal that uh everybody who came to uh listen to me would have to uh generate fee uh stock trading fees of $3500. Uh and uh and they would give me the envelope everybody loved it. Uh they had me back 2 months later did the same thing. Then uh they I, they didn't know that I worked at the Hudson Institute at that time. They called Herman Kahn and asked him, and uh, uh, they just told him the last person we paid was thirty-five hundred dollars. He said, "Well, you know, I'm the uh, big, famous author. You have to pay me four, four give me four thousand uh, dollars." So they paid him four thousand dollars. That went over very nicely. Then I got the call, you know, people really like the series we're doing, you know, will you come back again? And I said, well, what are you going to pay? He said, well, 3500 And I said, well, I understand you paid Herman Kahn $4,000. Uh, you'll have to, uh, I'll have to charge $4,500. Uh, okay. We're, make, we're getting more people. They came. I gave the speech. Then they called him the next month. He said, well, I understand. You know, uh, you're playing Michael $4,500. Uh, i am his boss. Uh, you, you have to pay me 5000 We ultimately got them up to $6,500. And he said, I think you guys are playing a game with us. <laughs> and uh, so $6,500 a month supplemented my 45,000 a year from the Hudson Institute. And uh, with Herman, we went all around the world. We went to uh, Korea, China, uh, not China, uh, Japan, uh, France, uh, uh, basically talking about uh, the balance of payments. And uh, Herman weighed over 400 pounds. Uh, One day we were in... uh, Uh, France and he asked we were packing and uh, he asked me to hand him his pants uh, from the closet and as far as my uh, arms would go it wasn't big enough for what went around his waist. Uh, Well one day uh, we came back uh, we had to go to the White House uh, for a meeting on uh, uh, oil and the balance of payments and we ha- who should be the undersecretary of the treasury but my old mentor from standard oil who'd t- explained to me how offshore banking centers worked and uh, he explained to me that uh, he told the saudi arabians you can charge whatever uh, this is right after america quadrupled the price of grain uh, to finance the vietnam war in 1972 or 73 uh, opec uh, responded by quadrupling the price of oil and uh, the Undersecretary of the Treasury explained to me that uh, they could charge whatever uh, they wanted for oil. The higher they charged, the more the American companies would get on domestic uh, oil. But they had to uh, uh, put, recycle all of their dollars into the United States, uh, into the stock market. You can't buy American companies. You can't buy. You can only buy stocks or bonds or. Uh, and you have to price your oil in dollars. Uh, And if you don't, that's an act of war. So here I was right in the middle of understanding how imperialism really worked. Uh, I mean, this was uh, uh, not... Uh, what is in most textbooks? Uh, most textbooks don 't talk about the balance of payments and the key to financial imperialism and uh, balance of payments imperialism and uh, the whole fight of the United States to prevent other countries from going on to the gold standard because america uh, by the time America went off gold in august thousand nine hundred and ninety one uh, here you needed uh, every American dollar bill was backed 25% by gold at $35 an ounce. Well, finally, there was no more surplus, and that's what forced America off gold, and the gold immediately went uh, way up. I was not allowed, as an American citizen, I wasn't allowed to buy uh, gold, so I, I knew it was coming, but I couldn't make any money off it. I Instead, I bought Tibetan and Indian art and uh, Asian art, uh, primarily, and uh, that, uh, basically, uh, by, to make a long story short, I became a financial analyst for uh, advisor to the Canadian government as a result of the uh, stock broker, brokerage work, and they said we need somebody who knows the American stock and bond market. And I was, uh, at that time, the highest-paid uh, economist uh, per diem in the United States for uh, financial uh, analysis. Uh, so I got a call saying uh, uh, they're going to want to hire you, but there's only one way in which they can tell how intelligent you are. Do you know about wine? Uh, so I took, uh, so uh, when I grew up my at the University of Chicago, the, the University of Chicago paid its professors so badly that the professors, to make money, wanted, the ideal was to be a wine steward at the pump room, which was the fancy restaurant in Chicago. Uh, if you saw, uh, there was a... Uh, comedy, not animal. House, I, I forget uh, one of the John Belushi comedies uh, was all about uh, the pump room uh, uh, wine mm-hmm. steward. So I took a sommelier's course, got a license. I brought two bottles of Rich, one of Richburg and one of uh, Latas uh, that I in the remainder uh, uh, column, and you know I gave them to my hosts in uh, Ottawa, and they uh, said that's the guy we want. So uh, I wrote a study of uh, trying uh, that Canada didn't have to borrow money uh, uh, abroad to domestic. To invest domestically at provincial investment, they could create their own money. Basically, this I, what I wrote was the first uh, example of what's now called mo- uh, modern monetary theory, that uh, you uh, the governments create their own money, uh, their own credit, and uh, they don't need uh, a backing for it. It's all, all basically a circular, the same circular flow analysis that I'd developed. Uh, uh from my uh history of thought a physiocratic analysis basically uh and then uh, a number uh of banks uh were so struck by my analysis that uh one their one of the uh top the top investment analyst for uh, the royal bank uh decided to become the head of personnel. He said he thinks it's a personality problem that uh, uh, economists can't understand how the world works, that uh, there's a a particular kind of dumb person that becomes uh, an economist. Uh, It's a kind of autism, uh, of thinking abstractly without a sense of economic reality. Uh, And so uh, he became... Uh, he appointed uh, got me an appointment with the uh, Secretary of State of Canada. In Canada, the Secretary of State is in charge of education, uh, and films, and uh, and culture. So I became uh, Canada's uh, cultural advisor, which is what I thought was fine all along, and uh, uh, did that for a while. Uh, and. I'd also, uh, around that time was an economic advisor to the United Nations uh, Institute for Training and Research, UNITAR, uh, writing their reports on North-South debt, uh, the foreign debt of third world countries, uh, denominated in dollars, uh, and how this was, uh, uh deranging their economies. Uh, they had a meeting, uh, in Mexico, uh, financed by, uh, the Mexican president and, uh, I was invited down there and uh, I uh, gave a report, a paper, saying that there is no way that the third world debts can be paid. One of the things I did at, at, in, uh, at Chase Manhattan, uh, my first uh, job there was to say how much uh, exports can Argentina, Brazil, and China, and uh, Chile uh, make. And the idea is that all of their export earnings should be paid. Enables them to pay his interest rates on money borrowed from the U.S. banks, and the idea was that the entire trade surplus should be pledged as debt service to the American banks, and my job was to think how much is that and what should Chase's share be. So I, at the uh, Mexican Unitar conference, I said that uh, there, there's, these debts cannot be paid. Therefore, they should not be paid. They should cancel now. And, uh, you know, there was quite a stir over that. Well, at the end of the conference, they had the reporters uh, coming. And uh, the reporter uh, said, and then uh, uh, Dr. Hudson uh, has given a report saying that uh, the third world countries should export more in order to pay their debts. And I stood up slowly and said, I must insist that the President of Mexico offer a public explanation, uh, uh, apology uh, to me and to the conference. Uh, th- this man has in, uh, done inverted and totally reversed everything I'm saying. Uh, I believe he has a covert uh, purpose. I'm pulling out the American delegation and I'm pulling out the Canadian delegation. We, are, we cannot be a part of this travesty. And uh, I walked out and think, what's going to happen? And. Uh, the uh, Russian uh, uh, we were outside the Russian ambassador came out laughing and he said ah you've dominated the whole conference you've, you've completely you know made, made chaos out of it you've embarrassed the CIA this is, this is fantastic here's my card we, you know I in New York uh, I, I, and then uh, uh, later that evening I was told you know they're looking for you to beat you up well as it happened an old girlfriend of mine was uh, in uh, a group of mine were in Mexico for an art exhibition and uh, they were surrealist artists, and uh, they were also doing a ballet. And uh, so I went uh, to the ballet with them, and uh, they said, look, there, the thugs are there. So I hit out with them on the stage as a ballet da- you know, they were looking in the audience, and I was on the stage, and we were all just surrealistic, so, you know, nobody knew how to dance or anything. It was all just surrealistic, and uh, they, you know, they all went home, and if they can't find you, they usually give up and leave you alone. Uh, I, I went back uh, to uh, New York, and uh, but I realized that this was so controversial, the idea that debts couldn't be paid, that I decided to write a history of uh, debt cancellations, and why debts couldn't be paid. So I, uh, I spent about a year, and I got through medieval period, Europe, World War I, uh, uh, and then even Greece and Rome. But then I found, um, it was in about 1980, 1981. Uh, at that time, I'd, I'd sold my house on uh, the Lower East Side and moved into a loft on near Wall Street, uh, which was a very l- low-priced area at that time. Uh, and I bought it for $20,000. Later, I sold it for 580000 but that's another story. Uh, it shows you the real estate in New York. But at that time, nobody wanted to live in lofts. That was considered. And I wanted a big loft because I had a big library at that time and a lot of art that I wanted to uh, uh, keep. So basically, I stopped working. I spent all my time. I realized that... Uh, in the Bible, there was the uh, uh, the Jubilee year, and there were references to Sumer and Babylonia. Uh, and I realized there was a background of uh, the biblical debt cancellations. The, almost the, the same word for deror in Hebrew is anderarim in Babylonian. And I, I realized there was all this material in, that had never been written in any of, there was no economic history of the ancient Near East, no economic history of Sumer and Babylonia. It was all religion and uh, uh, some culture, Gilgamesh and all that, but not what I was interested in, which was the debt cancellations. So I, be, I began to, I wrote a draft of what I could find by 1984. And uh, one of my closest friends, uh, was the Ice Age archaeologist Alex Marshak, who, uh, also, who, although he lived in New York, was on the uh, connected to Harvard's Peabody Museum. He showed it to the uh, head of the Peabody, Carl uh, Lambert Karlovsky, uh, and Carl said, this is great, nobody's working on it. Uh, will make you a fellow of the Peabody Museum in Archae- Babylonian Archaeology. And I thought, this is wonderful. This is really what I want to do. So I spent the next uh, maybe three years uh, writing the first draft of what became uh, the book that's being published next month and, forgive them their debts, uh, uh, credit and redemption from the Bronze Age Near East to the Jubilee Year. Uh, I submitted it to the University of California uh, press, uh, they sent it to scholars and he said, it's impossible, debts could be canceled. If debts were canceled, who would lend money? And that's what Hillel said in the uh, uh, Judaic tradition. And I said, most debts were not the result of loans. Most debts were, uh, when the crops would fail, the cultivators could not pay their taxes. They could not pay the palace for the fees they'd run up, uh, the rental fees for the land, uh, the fees for the water, for the draft animals. They couldn't pay the beer lady for the beer that they'd dr- during the year. So every ruler, when they would take the throne in Sumer, and Babylonia, for a thousand years would start the rule by canceling the debts with a clean slate, an amnesty. Uh, it's the same amnesty of the kind that Egypt's Rosetta Stone commemorates. Everybody knows that the Rosetta stone uh explain has trilingual uh inscriptions of uh Greek uh Egyptian and Coptic, but nobody knows that the it's a debt cancellation that's what we call cognitive dissonance. People can't imagine that the debts were cancelled so uh, uh, I realized that this was very controversial and so Uh, my Harvard uh, uh, colleague, uh, Carl Amber Karolosky, said, we're going to have a series of uh, meetings. Why don't you organize them? Uh, And uh, we'll have each chapter of your book, we're going to have a meeting on every two years, and you'll have every specialist from early Sumer, Neo-Sumerian period, Babylonia, Near East, Egypt. Uh, They'll all collect everything they can have on... Whatever the meetings will be. And so, uh, I, since I was in New York, I worked with uh, the leading Hebraic uh, art, uh, uh, linguist, uh, uh, Baruch Levine. And uh, I needed someone who was respected in the linguistic field to invite people to it because I was, uh, most Assyriologists, readers of cuneiform, Stayed away from economics because the economic idea of how society developed, all in is as if Margaret Thatcher would have uh, created uh, civilization. Uh, you know, how would Margaret Thatcher have done it, or Milton Friedman? Uh, and uh, the, or th- there were what we call vulgar Marxists who think that it was. Uh, the idea that seemed plausible to Engels when he wrote the origin of the family private property in the state, uh, that's not how things occurred. So uh, the, the Assyriologist wouldn't talk to economists, but because I was now an archaeologist uh, with, with Harvard uh, in the anthropology department, uh, they were all coming to the conference, and the first volume we did uh, at a meeting in 1994 uh, on privatization in the ancient Near East and classical antiquity. Uh, That was, uh, Harvard published that. Later, we moved toward the second volume, which was land use and land prop- uh, and real estate ownership. How did how did property ownership come into being? That was two years later, and then we'd all, we'd planned from the very beginning third volumes. The third volume was on debt and economic renewal in the ancient Near East, which was everything that people could find about debt cancellations, and we found all the way through the first millennium through the uh, Herodotus talked about debt cancellations in Babylonia. Uh, there were it was a tradition remaining in the Near East of new rulers taking the throne, canceling the debts, so you could start with the economy in balance. Because they all knew already in 1800 B.C., in uh, uh, Hammurabi's time, 1750 B.C., scribes would calculate the growth of the compound interest. And at that time, it was 20% interest. Well, the growth was exactly the same exponential chart that I'd drawn up uh, in... uh, the savings banks uh, in the 1960s for the growth of American debt. So uh, they were quite aware of the fact that debts couldn't be paid and that if you insisted on be paid, you would have debtors falling into bondage. So they freed the bond servants or debtors would ser- uh, sell their means of self-support, the land, uh, and you returned the land that had been sold under economic uh distress uh the, and the word distress means uh what you the collateral that you've pledged to a coll- to a creditor was called the distress it's an irish uh, uh term basically uh, so we pu- we published that uh and by that time pe- uh i'd got the whole basically the people i had invited and Baruch had invited and Carl had invited, were uh, the leaders of their field. So we had pretty much everybody agreeing with uh, the interpretation. We then followed it up uh, with another meeting at the British Museum on uh, the origins of money and uh, accounting uh, uh, and the idea that money was uh, created not for barter, not for goods and services, it was created to denominate debts. If you owed a debt, How did you get money? Uh, And we did the history of money. And then the one thing we hadn't done, finally, was the origins of labor. And uh, that took 10 years uh, to do. And we found out the origins of labor uh, organized were basically, it occurred in in the palace economy, the palaces and the temples. uh, That in the Neolithic, uh, the main use of labor from the Neolithic Bronze Age, classical antiquity, was to fight in the army and to work on corvée labor to build public infrastructure. So uh, what do you do uh, in order to uh, get a supply of labor? You assign them land. So rather than uh, the land being taxed, oh, that's awful for the, you know, as today they say they will discourage landlords, uh, property was created to assign families enough to support themselves so that they could perform corvée labor and fight in the army. So taxes came first, then came the uh, the uh, land, and then uh, based on uh, what you had to pay uh, to to, uh, to uh, if you wanted to substitute someone to work uh, on the corvee, that became the basis for paying labor. So all of the payments came from what today would be called the public sector. It's not really a uh, a very good. Uh, Term, it was really the palatial sector, the palace and the temples, as opposed to the community based family on the land. And so uh, we had a a new analysis of the origins of property, not in uh, individuals grabbing, as uh, Engels uh, had thought, but uh, property was really created by the public sector, by the palaces, as uh, assignment as what property is needed, how much land area is needed in order to supply the labor for the uh, public infrastructure, corvée work, and uh, service in the army. So uh, we sort of inverted uh, the exact reverse of what's taught in economic textbooks today, which is, as I said, how Margaret Thatcher and uh, right-wingers and Donald Trump would have designed an economy if they would have uh, started, got gone in a time machine and uh, gone back. So... Uh, these five volumes, uh, I'm now writing my own popular versions, uh, History of Debt, uh, uh, Temples of Enterprise, a whole series of books on uh, uh, classical antiquity, and I'm now following up by uh, Greece and Rome, where throughout the whole beginning of Greece and Rome, uh, the main fight was between creditors and debtors, and how creditors could grab the land. The same fight occurred all the way down through the Byzantine Empire. uh, When uh, the the tension throughout history from the third millennium Sumer to second millennium Babylonia to the ninth and 10th century in the Byzantine Empire is the tension between the palace wanting to collect taxes and have labor for the army and individual wealthy people who want to uh, have in debt labor and have the labor work for the, for them uh, separately and have the economic surplus paid to them. And the way of getting the economic surplus is not the way that uh, Marx described it as uh, being obtained under capitalism by employing labor to produce goods to s- sell at a profit, but by debt uh, and uh, uh, taking interest and in ultimately foreclosing in land, which was the real uh, objective. Well, in the ninth uh, century. Uh, uh, there was a big fight between uh, the uh, emperor of Byzantium and uh, Bardas, uh, lo- the local general that the uh, the oligarchs uh, had tried to do to fight against a strong power. It was sort of like uh, Donald Trump and the Tea Party uh, Republicans are uh, fighting against uh, the uh, the state. Uh, like the privatizers in the Soviet Union fighting against uh, the state. And uh, he invited uh, Bardis to uh, a big meal, uh, and the general said, uh, there's only, uh, what you should uh, do is, if you want to end the warfare, you have to tax the wealthy families so they don't have any surplus at all. You have to uh, give them so much burden that they can't fight against you. You have to prevent the polarization of wealth because if you let uh, the private sector make uh, an enormous amount of wealth, they're going to try to fight against you and keep all the wealth that you and the palace are now getting for themselves. And uh, you had this expressed all the way back in the 7th century, 6th century BC with Thrasybulus and Periander of Corinth uh, when uh, Thrasybulus uh, took uh, took, uh, uh, Periander's uh, herald to a land uh, and said, here's what you should do. And the land was a field of grain. And he took a scythe and he cut all the the tops, he made all the grain equal. And so uh, Periander went back and uh, exiled all of the wealthy families, seized their property. There was probably a bit of fighting there. And uh, that is basically the fight throughout history. So that's what I've been working on for the last uh, 20 years. And how did you take up the interest in Chinese economy? Uh, China is, is, as Samar Amin said at the meeting yesterday, he said, this is the economy that is trying to be the exception to the Western economic model. And uh, the Western economic model poses a choice between civilization and barbarism. And the West is really moving rapidly into economic barbarism and militarism. Uh, As you can see, uh, the the, uh, uh, the austerity uh, program of the Euro uh, is destroying the economy there. The United States uh, is cutting taxes on the rich, uh, is indebting the uh, working class very very highly. it's going down. The the one country that is independent and not taking the advice of the uh, World Bank and the International Monetary Fund is China. So we're hoping uh, to do what we can to make the Chinese economy successfully resistant. Uh, What that means is how is China going to handle its real estate? Uh, How is it going to handle its debt? How is it going to handle its tax system? Uh, And what I'm, uh, I'm trying to do is just what David Harvey was trying to do in the speech that he gave yesterday of uh, getting uh, the Chinese Marxists to read volumes two and especially volume three of Capital where Marx discusses uh, the dynamics of finance. Uh, and uh, Marxism is much more than volume one of Capital. Uh, it, you have to read volumes two and three and uh, especially the elaboration that Marx did in the drafts that he led i Uh, left for Volumes 2 and 3, his Mervet, his Theories of Surplus Value, where he discusses uh, the history of economic thought leading up to him. And you realize how Marx was the last great classical economist in the classical tradition. And what he showed is that capitalism itself is revolutionary. Capitalism itself is driving forward. And of course, he expected capitalism to lead towards socialism, as indeed it seemed to be doing uh, in the 19th Uh, but uh, it's not working out that way. Everything changed in World War I. Uh, and in World War I, you had an anti-classical economics that really was an anti-Marxist economic. The fight for uh, uh, marginalist theory, for Austrian theory, the fight for junk economics that we have today uh, is basically the fight against Marxism because Marx showed the logical conclusion to which, to which the physiocrats, Adam Smith, John Stuart Mill, Ricardo and Malthus, the conclusion that was all leading was the synthesis that he made. Uh, and that was later developed by people like Thorstein Veblen, uh, Simon Patton uh, in the United States. Uh, so I'm hoping that I can contribute uh, what I can to uh, the analysis of China's economy to avoid the financialization process and dynamic that is destroying the West.